Welcome to the 15th episode of the Chaplain's Assistance Motorpod. I am your host, Gary, and this is my bi-weekly podcast where I discuss my world of G.I. Joe. My world of G.I. Joe is the comic books, it's the toys, it's what's going on in G.I. Joe news, or what I'm just going through my collection, whether it's cleaning up my mess in my basement, setting up a display, which I haven't even gotten near yet, or just fixing toys, which I like to do. And I close out every episode taking a look at something that I probably came close to running over while going through my stuff the last two weeks. This week, the motorpod is set up in Valkukuklent, sometimes known as W-Land. We're on our way to check out some wares being sold by a arms dealer who seems to refurbish things on the used market and sell them as new. And as always, we try to spread the Christmas message of peace during this holiday season. So while that refurbished trike may be a good gift for you, but is it really the gift that speaks to the holiday season? We'll find out. That's what I'm going to work on later. But for now, let's talk about what's going on in the comic books. San Diego Comic-Con happened recently and word was going around that IDW hadn't renewed the license with Hasbro for G.I. Joe or in general any Hasbro property. There are a myriad of reasons why IDW hasn't. Maybe it's just time to renew. Maybe they aren't planning on renewing or maybe Hasbro isn't even planning on renewing with IDW. This came across, uh, if you remember, in the mid-aughts, about 2007, when Devil's Due was getting ready to finish up a 12-part, well, actually, they were getting ready to start the 12-part World War III storyline when Hasbro chose not to renew the license with Devil's Due. Hasbro did allow Devil's Due to finish the storyline before moving it to IDW, but here's a case where Hasbro decided to not renew a license. That could be going on here. IDW could, you know, not be able to afford the license. There were some really good insights or speculation on the Anything Joe's podcast, and those guys really, really hashed it out really much better than I'm going to do uh, by myself here. So if you really want to know more about the ins and outs of licensing, um, I would suggest you check out one of their recent episodes. It was it was actually re- really informative, and it wasn't um, it was very fair and non-biased while looking at it. My opinion is, if IDW is going to lose the GI Joe license, much less all Hasbro licenses, that's going to be sad for me. I think IDW has given Larry Hama the chance to do another 145 issues of A Real American Hero and some side stories as well. And it's been really good because it really speaks to the nostalgia and it has kept the universe moving forward. But it's also a double-edged sword there, whereas when Devils Do had it, they chose to carry the storyline without Larry Hama. And of course, that became the disavowed sign. 
but it's kind of like to pardon the analogy is think about Stan Lee in Marvel in the 1960s. He created, you know, Daredevil, my favorite, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Iron Man, Captain... Well, he didn't create Captain America, but he did reintroduce him. But as Stan Lee was writing, you know, eventually he moved on to other projects, which allowed other characters to move in. We've been very spoiled by Larry uh, with IDW. And we are told that IDW is planning on getting to 300, the magic number. And it would be really sad if we didn't get that from Mr. Hama. If another company takes over, will we see another Hama? I think it's highly doubtful at this point. Would I like to see another writer take over the continuity? Yes, but with the caveat that I think it should be Mr. Hama's choice to decide that he's done rather than have it taken away from him. That's really my thoughts on that. Um, there's a myriad of reasons why IDW still has the license hanging out, but nobody has really been privy to why. So there is that. But in the meantime, IDW did publish issue 288 of A Real American Hero and it centers around Falcon Vincent Falcone and again it's one of these spotlight issues where I'll gush and say about how Hama really shines in these and I'll also mention about the editorial decision to make the connecting cover cover A rather than cover B and to start off with, you know, the, co the cover B, which is what I'm really going to talk about, was done by Kubar Bal. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's B-A-A-L. It's a beautiful, almost pinup shot of Falcon with his shotgun, you know, pistol grip, pump action, with a um, modern helicopter in behind. I want to say it looks like a AH-64 Apache, but a modern or updated version of that so it doesn't look it looks like an Apache or in the Apache style but it's not an Apache there's also a retailer incentive cover by John Royal which is an homage to a cosplay photo shoot of 3D Joe's Carson Metaxas 3D Joe's a great website that I use for researching as I'm fixing vehicles uh, he probably has the best scans available online for blueprints um, and if you need a blueprint to place a decal or figure out how to put something together, or in my case, sometimes take it apart, uh, it's a great resource. And John Royal had a super cool cover, and I can't wait till my I potentially get one because it got damaged in transit to my local comic shop. I would be really, uh, really happy to get that. And maybe I might even have to go on eBay and get that. Now, the book opens with Falcone as a teenager, and he's, you know, really thinking, he's in a museum, and he's looking at the Green Berets, and he is the son of a Vietnam veteran who succumbed to Agent Orange, or allegedly succumbed to Agent Orange, because the DOD will not affirm that. But it starts with, you know, he gets some advice from another soldier, or a soldier, he's not a soldier yet, 
And then after that, it just jumps right into the action with an extraction mission in Barovia during the Barovian Volkukuklent dispute of the border. And there's ethnic cleansing on both sides. It's it's pretty good. I mean, the situation's not pretty good, but it is a realistic. This is a really grounded story. It's it again, it's something that is a ninja. It's good, you know, good old army G.I. Joe story. And immediately you're brought into the hostage situation that Falcon is going to uh, attempt the rescue. And two of the three prisoners, if you recognize their last names, it's Law and Fast Draw. And there's also Order the Dog, the German Shepherd. It's, um, you immediately recognize them. And the other thing, it, neat thing, is they actually use in the book Law's correct file card last name. Last time we saw Law was about 10 issues ago in 278. And they used Kirk Bazigian's last name as for Law. However, in this issue, and they use Law's correct last name from the file card, Levine. That's kind of an inconsistency there. I'm glad they fixed it. You know, maybe there's a way I can no prize my way out of the situation. But I'm just happy that editorial made sure it was right on this issue for, for Law and Order. I think consistency is key with a book. Um... You know, and that's why editorial is there. Editorial is there to help the writer because it is a team effort making a book. And the editor is essentially the captain or maybe the manager of the team. The Bolivian military is going to execute the three prisoners. And that's law and order. Well, that counts as one because they are going to execute order as well. They're going to execute fast draw. And they're going to execute another unnamed hostage. And they execute the unnamed hostage who, you know, really is just there to prove the point that the Bar the Barovian side is nasty and they're not taking names, they're not holding prisoners. When Falcon jumps into the rescue in an absolutely badass way, and then the rest of the issue is them escaping E&E, escape and evade. They're using an eight-wheel eight ATV. You know, it's kind of like uh, the six-wheel uh, ATV we saw in Special Missions when Michael Golden drew the October Guard. And the Barovians chase him with a hind. Pretty, you know, tense right out. And it's, and it's really paced really well with good banter. And there's a little bit of believability, a little bit of suspension of disbelief. It works. And the issue closes out, tying it into... Issue number 60. So it's really great to see the continuity flowing in this book and the way Hama scripted it and paced it. Again, this is one of my favorite issues uh, of his in this uh, new run of his. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the interior artwork by the cover artist that I like, Kubel Ball. He did a great job. He did, it looks like he did ink himself again. But he actually did a great job with backgrounds, with layouts. This is a book, again, you know, this guy did a really nice job working with Larry. And Larry works in 
the Marvel style. So it can be somewhat difficult when you work in the Marvel style to get great layouts if you're not a visual storyteller yourself. And it really shows that this guy knew what he was doing. And the other thing with the backgrounds is the backgrounds really place you in every frame. So my hat's off to the team on this book. Another stellar job. Next issue, the cover shows Helix and Don Moreno. And I'm looking forward to that one as well. Can't wait. The big news two days ago was a Sky Striker from Haslab funding. It reached 16,000 backers, over 16,000 backers by the end of the day after starting the day with just a little over 70, about 7,500. It rocketed past as the day wore on, you know, it just accelerated until the end, you know, ending with the Sky Striker and the crew of Ace and Lieutenant Ruthel, and then with the added bonus as part of the base, of Cobra Commander with the Mickey Mouse swivel arm, a Cobra Trooper with flesh hands, and a Cobra Flight Deck attendant. And then it reached the stretch goal of Scarlet in the Ace body with the Virgin One head, and then Night Force Ripcord. A solid get at 230 for all those figures. You know, when you think about them as somewhere in the 15 to $20 range, and then you add the Sky Striker, which is going to get some new additional tooling, which unfortunately has to be paid for somehow. We got a cool plane coming to us in 2023. So we got to wait. In G.I. Joburg's podcast from a week ago, they talked about how this was diabolical market research on O-Ring, and it probably is, and it's great for a guy like me that collects O-Ring to add something new to that figure-wise, maybe not plane-wise, but I'm excited to have a variant of the Sky Striker that is for O-Ring. I don't own any modern Sky Strikers, and this will also mean that I don't need three vintage Sky Strikers for my flag. I can have two and one, which is absolutely was my intention on this. I get that it was expensive. I get that it wasn't for everyone. I get some people wish it wasn't the Sky Striker. Uh, I will admit, if it was something other than the Sky Striker, I would have probably bought it. But I also would say that the Sky Striker isn't my first choice either. I don't know what my first choice would be. Well, probably the Cobra Transport Hopter. But do you begin for your first stretch project a villain's vehicle? Or do you do a hero's vehicle or playset. I would lean with a G.I. Joe line. You're going to look for an iconic vehicle or playset of G.I. Joe to recreate or make for the first time. The Sky Striker is a great idea and it has been prominently featured for a very long time. The only other thing that I can think of that would have been at, for a vehicle-wise a good litmus test, which it probably won't, would have been a Tomahawk helicopter. Some people, a lot of people said the whale. Whale would have been awesome, but does a whale scream G.I. Joe in a collector's community? A lot of guys that would be on HasLab looking for that latest 
or greatest toy? Would they flock to a whale more than a Sky Striker? I know a lot of G.I. Joe fans love the whale. But if you're trying to attract a new person to G.I. Joe or somebody new to an O-ring aesthetic or let's say a let's say a not hardcore fan, a more casual guy that's like, yeah, these four inch guys are great, but they're just not the same as I have in my hand. I really want an O-ring figure. What are they going to gravitate towards? And I would say right now for a first project, I think the Sky Striker was probably the smartest choice. Now, flip side, I said a word there too, collector. Now, one thing I want to talk about is, for the most part, this was marketed as a collector toy. Not a toy, a collector's toy. It's on Hasbro Pulse. A Hasbro Pulse is a website for collectors. In listener land, is anybody's children going to Hasbro Pulse looking for the latest toy? These kids, kids these days don't have the catalogs coming in. They're going on websites. They're looking at what is the newest thing for them to get. You know, they're also attracted to on TV or in YouTube ads, what is displayed to them on stuff like that. I see this firsthand with my son. My son was not exposed to the Sky Striker in one way, shape, or form, even though I have three of them in my basement and they've come up and down a few times. He has no interest. It's not ingrained in him. He has watched the G.I. Joe show a couple times. He generally fidgets around after about 15 minutes and goes back to his iPad, but it's not there for him. It's not there for him as, as a kid. Not like it was for me. I was five years old and six years old when it aired before school for me in syndication, and that made me want G.I. Joe that more. But G.I. Joe right now is a collector's toy, not so much a children's toy, even though they advertise on the box it's for suitable for ages four and up, which it probably is. I wouldn't doubt him for doing that. But at that point, it's still a collector's toy or a generational toy where the bulk of the marketing of selling the toy to the kids is left in the hands of the parents. Some things should be left in the hands of parents. Getting kids to play with toys, with physical toys, not on an iPad, not in a video game, but a toy, you know, you got to have the marketing guys or the marketing people doing their job to get those toys because the IP of G.I. Joe rests in the hands of who's handling these toys or other materials. You know, the comic book that I love so much really was just another way to sell you on toys. And it absolutely worked on me when I grew older. In a long story short, I am happy for the Haslab. Happy for the collectors that are in the Haslab. I'm happy for the collectors who have children that are into G.I. Joe for the Haslab. And hopefully other collectors as well that will try to introduce these more durable, not fragile, and aged out plastic figures to their children. Maybe there will be a little bit of a groundswell. But for me, my growing concern is because I enjoy G.I. Joe so much and I enjoy what it has given to me through writers that gave these characters life, like on the cartoon of Flint Dilly and Ron Friedman and Chuck Dixon, to, you know, the comic book, you know, of Larry Hama 
you know, and Josh Blaylock and Herb Trimpe and all these other guys that have added more to the lore. And I know I'm missing names here, but these guys gave these characters life more than just the toys being on the shelves because it's advertising and it's about exposing. I wouldn't mind my son coming up to me and being like, yeah, I like this thing that I saw on YouTube, a G.I. Joe series, but I can't do it all. You know, maybe it's just not his thing, and that's cool. Anyway, I'm going to have a new Sky Striker in a little over a year, and I'm going to be happy. It's going to be opened up, and I'm also not going to be as worried about my kid, you know, grabbing, grabbing it and breaking it. So there is that. And there is hope <laughs> as we approach the 40 years of G.I. Joe. Now, what does this mean for G.I. Joe as a property? Are they going O-ring? Are they going, you know, retro with the 4-inch modern sculpting style? I don't know where to, what to tell you. I think it would be silly if they just left G.I. Joe alone with O-ring. I think it's kind of weird if they split it up with different scales of the three and three quarter and four inch modern. I am enjoying some of the four inch modern. The new Stalker and Grunt are absolutely fantastic. And you also have the Classified series, which appeals to a lot more people. But I am happy that O-Ring is coming back. I can't wait to see in what scale of the, and I mean, and I mean that by size of this new line or this relaunch line, comes forward during our 40 as we approach our the 40th anniversary of GI Joe Real American Hero. The past couple weeks in my little world, you know, I've gone through my storage again and I had a couple good days in there getting things sorted out where I can start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel where I've got a whole bunch of things sorted out and I found things that I didn't know I had. And one of the things that I pulled out of storage was the 1989 Cobra Python Conquest. Now, the Conquest we know from 1986 was a G.I. Joe vehicle helmed by Slipstream. And one thing about that was it got it's gotten some good reuse over the years. And the first reuse it was 1989's Python Conquest. The Python Conquest was loosely based on the Northrop Grumman X-29. And the X-29 was designed as that forward swept wing and it did have some inherent problems with that. Now, with an airplane, and the, the whole forward swept thing was about moving this point of lift further to the rear of the airplane in the experiment of improving maneuverability. Because one of the things, you know, as if you've read the comic books that can win dogfights is a tight turning radius. And it's kind of like a car. For better handling, if you're driving a car, let's, or let's, a better example would be in a car, like think of about of a Jaguar XKE or a Shelby Cobra, 
where as a driver you sit pretty close actually to the rear wheels whereas the front engine is between you and the front steering and it gives you this degree of maneuverability in tight turning that allows you to you know get in and out of tight situations so the premise on this is applied to an airplane however an airplane has one thing to worry about that a car doesn't and, it, and that is a car is suspended by lift where a car is on all four tires which distributes the load the wings distribute the load to the airframe so the easiest way for me to explain that would be you know grab a ruler unless you're driving a car don't grab a ruler um, just listen along maybe when you get to work or home you know find a 12 inch ruler and you can you can do that but when you pick up a ruler in the center and twist your wrist it moves very easily now move your hand down to one end like grab it between 11 and 12 inches and start whipping it around the front of that ruler now from where you're from where you're using your wrist as the fulcrum is going to it's going to rise or dive or move around rapidly because it it's the movement of your wrist is amplified as it goes out towards the end of the ruler but then also notice that as you do that especially and it's also works better with a let's say a yardstick is you notice that it's harder to move it from one end than if it's in than if your hands in the center because you're grabbing the body of your ruler in the center right it's um, you know so it's it's physics the Grumman X29 did was try to do that in the ex, at the expense of maneuverability right however it became difficult to control they had to have three computers because it didn't handle good and stable flight it was great as a stunt plane but not as a you know fighter jet that lends credence to the the conquests design and it, it, it's, it's a great example of G.I. Joe trying to be ahead of the curve of the of the military by a few years I've chose the conquest the, the Python conquest because it, it's the one that I bumped into in my storage unit I had two of them and one of them was absolutely both of them were actually absolutely gorgeous and I was just like wow this is really cool so what grabbed me about the Python conquest was the paint job now we all know that you have that red fishnet type paint scheme over the base colors of the of the Python vehicles right but when you look at it you also realize that there's silver highlights over a black base underneath the red the red fishnet paint scheme and the more I looked at it the more I was struck by that and how really pretty the plane is overall it's 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 done very well the yellow plastic is just a shade darker than what's on the the GI Joe 1986 conquest the bombs or as they're called out for on the blueprints in the box the removable drop tanks which are you know for fuel they're a different shade of gray which matches other gray plastic around the plane but overall this is like 
you know, you look at a Tom, you look at the Sky Striker, and then you look at this, and this is like a quote unquote much simpler jet. But in some of that lies its what I find striking, which is the clean lines. And then when you take the two top panels off, there's two removable top panels. You have access to the engines, which are rich with, you know, again, that G.I. Joe model aesthetic of detail, you know, ripe for touch-ups for customization or just, you know, enjoying it out of the box. You know, the, the great detail in that. The cockpit, you know, doesn't have a center stick. That is something that if I saw this remolded again, or maybe I could purchase a 25th or modern version of this, I would probably find, as they did with the Sky Strikers in the modern line, it still has those controls on either side. It's a little flimsy in the cockpit area. It's not as detailed as the, let's say, the engine sides are, but it's it's there and it and it's satisfying, right? And then at the front, you have the two nose cannons, the top-mounted double-fang 25-millimeter twin cannons, which is essentially 25 millimeters, roughly an inch. You know, they're right there, too. And, there's, and again, they're covered over in the same fishnet and stuff. But, like, that was, like, the first thing I saw. I was like, ooh, I really want to take some modeling paint to that and uh, really just make it pop a little bit. You know, a little flat bat, black or a little gunmetal would really make it stand out on that and it's just like a just a neat little a neat little area that needs a little pop but other than that as i even hold it again this is just an awesome plane you have eight surfaces as wings you know six of them are wings you know two of them are the are the tail fins and it just looks striking if you look at it from the nose on the front canards and the the rear elevators they form a almost a perfect X center lining in the center of the jet and it looks great and you have of course the forward swept main wings which almost intersect again on that same center line point and the tail fins are also splayed outwards as well you know it just creates a wonderful pattern of X's or converging planes and it works so well to my eye, and it just keeps drawing it to the plane, which makes it attractive to me. The landing gear is simple. The front and the rear go up separately, you know, with your hands. Um, it's not connected via a latch. So in that simplicity, there is, you know, no lever sticking out like in a Sky Striker or extended tab as the Night Raven or the or the Phantom. Overall, like I said, this is this is just a fun plane. I've been zooming around with it for a while uh, since I brought it home. And you know, it's an awesome Python patrol vehicle. You know, I think the paint job really makes it more interesting to me than the G.I. Joe Conquest. You know, how would I rate the Conquest? The Python Conquest, to me, really belongs as the Python Patrol subset. And collecting the Python Patrol subset, for me, was a must. You know, that was a full four. You know, like, is it a must, must, must have? Which, you know, a five out of five? You know, almost. It's like a, it's a solid four out of five, you know, vehicle. 
If you're not interested in Python Patrol, you wouldn't have this. If the reuse of molds doesn't interest you, or the repainting of Cobras getting G.I. Joe vehicles, you know, you don't like that. And it was explained really well in the comic book with Darklon buying the United States' used inventory. Then fine, you know, it's not your thing. But for me, it's awesome, and I love it. I have two of them. I have no intention of buying more. And that's it, you know, that's the four that's the four out of five conquest. Now before I shut up about the conquest, the one thing I noticed, and I was looking through yojo.com, and I was like, okay, well, who on the Python Patrol would be piloting the Python Conquest? There's no pilots in the Python Patrol. The closest you get to a pilot is the Lamprey, who was repurposed from the Cobra Moray. He's a pilot. But watercraft. That is really the only thing. Who would, who would you have f fly the the Python Conquest? Copperhead again, another marine guy. You know, he's he's he pilots a boat. He's a captain. Wild Weasel. For me, he would be the first thing I would do. You know, he's flying. The, you know, the Rattler. But the Rattler's like a, just a different plane. And you know it's a t you know that's the A10 Warthog. It's slower. It is a ground pounder. So Wild Weasel, interesting as a character, I don't think the Python Conquest fits his personality. So that really leaves me with only a few more choices, which is an Arrow Viper or a Strato Viper. As I bing them back and forth in my head, I'm going to lean with Strato Viper. Let's get a. Python Patrol Strato Viper to pilot the Python Conquest. Or maybe even a Python AVAC. But again, alright, you know, just thinking of that and spitballing here, maybe not the AVAC. Because it doesn't fit, again, what I perceive as the AVAC's personality. There you have it. The Strato Viper in a Python Patrol outfit would be perfect in my mind for the Python Conquest, but it doesn't matter what I play with or how I play with these guys, as I annoy my wife, it matters what you think as well. And to let me know what you think, I can be reached at chaplainjoepod at gmail.com for email, or on Twitter and Instagram, at chaplainjoepod. I'm still on Valku Kuklin. And I got to meet up with this guy named Wolfgang because before I leave, he says he's got a steal of a deal on his 69 Camaro that some other Americans just left behind. But I'm a sucker for a good deal, so I can't wait to check this out. So with that, this has been your 15th episode of the Chapel's Assistance Motorpod, the strange, but not estranged, nerdy little brother of the Pint of Comics broadcasting family. At the very least, we remember to send each other Christmas cards each year. The Chaplain's Assistance Motorpod can be found on Anchor.fm, our host, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other fine podcasting platforms. If you find this on YouTube or anywhere on your podcasting platforms, don't forget to like, comment, rate, hit the bell, or anything that you can to interact with the podcast because that only helps us get better and grow. With that all out of the way, and in honor of Dino, I will just want to leave you with this final missile for the masses. Be decent to each other.
See ya. This is a riveting podcasting. They call me Fastra, but what is his last name? Oh my gosh, hold on tight. Correction, badass green beret. Rouse the pilot. Three times fly by. No, you are your dead man. Do, do, do. There's a is fun.